right, well, as you're being seated, go ahead and get your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I am thrilled that I get the privilege of sharing a little bit of the vision that God has uh, put in our hearts uh, at Harvest Indy South to be a church planting church. And uh, my name is Joe Catronio. So before I get into the sermon, I want to introduce a little bit about myself and what God has called me in particular to do. Um, God has given me the opportunity to plant the very first uh, church plant out of Harvest Indy South, yo. That is awesome. Man, what a cool thing. Uh, we, we knew that when we planted this church here that God called us to be a church planting church, always since day one. Um, so that was always in our DNA. Um, but this happened rather quickly. Uh, so what's going to happen is God has called us to plant the, the church, and it's going to be located in Franklin Township. The name of the church plant is Doxa Bible Church. What a funky name. Doxa Bible Church. What does that mean? Um, well, it's actually it's woven into the fabric of the entire New Testament. Um, this word appears every time, just about every time you see the word glory in your New Testament, it's this Greek word doxa. Perhaps you might be familiar with, you grew up in church, like the doxology. Like the, that's all about like the explosion of God's glory in your heart. That's what that means. Um, so this idea of doxa, it's the, it's the reason why God created the church to begin with. Like check this verse out, right out of scripture, Ephesians chapter 3. We don't have to wonder what the mission of the church is. Uh, the end of the chapter says this, to God be glory or doxa in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, there's only one purpose, one mission for the church. And guess what it is? Doxa. It's God's glory. Like, you rip open our hearts, it should be God's glory. Like, that's the point. Um, so I am jacked out of my mind uh, to be planting a church that God named, not any kind of a group of men named. It's just straight out of the Bible. So... All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're there, say amen. amen. Awesome. Okay, chapter 3. Um, the title of this message is Changed by Glory. Now, before I jump start into this, um, how many of you all have heard this phrase before? Um, if you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. How many of you have heard that? If you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Okay, some of you. Um, most of the time, that is true. Um, I believe it was always true growing up as a kid. In fact, I so believe that statement um, that there's a group of, there's some incredible athletes who grew up in the neighborhood that I grew up in, um, in Orlando, Florida. And I'm telling you, these, in particular, they were really talented at basketball. And so I thought, believing that statement to be true, if I spend enough time with these ballers, like I'm going to be a basketball player. Like I'm going to be able to dunk like Joe up in the air, kind of, I'll be able to do that at like 13 years old. Um, well, here's the thing. Uh, I started noticing a common trend among these guys. Like all of these athletes, they were really good. They could be on, they were just star players. They all had these particular shoes on. Check this out. Anybody recognize that shoe? You remember what I'm talking about? Okay, like Space Jams, baby, right? Okay, show my age a little bit. So this is the official um, Nike Air Jordans 1996 edition. All right, so show my age a little bit. Um, but man, those were the bomb. Like everybody had those shoes. So I convinced myself. If I spend enough time with these ballers, I'm going to be a baller. And if I get their swag and get those shoes, get out the way, Air Joe. I thought it was going to happen. I mean, can you imagine that? That would be so funny. Anyway, 
It did not happen. It did not happen. So the, the statement, you know, um, who you hang around, uh, actually you become, not always true, not in my case. Um, but I will say this, in the text we're getting ready to read this morning, Paul makes a very similar statement in regards to our spiritual lives. But the difference is, it is always true what he says here. So check this out. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 makes a statement. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. All right, so if I were to give you the sermon in a sentence and unpack for you what Paul is saying in this one verse, here is the sermon in a sentence. When I behold the glory of Jesus, I become like the person of Jesus. That's exactly what he's saying here. What we're going to do is we're going to take word for word, line by line, just phrase by phrase. We're going to unpack all this, and I'm going to show you that that's exactly what he's saying. When we behold the glory of Jesus, we will become like the person of Jesus. All right, so if you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to write down is this. As a believer, I have been given the privilege to behold the glory of Jesus. I've been given the privilege to behold the glory of Jesus. So check out, who, who is Paul talking to in this verse? Notice who he says. He says, and we, what's he say, church? All, like every person in the building who is a true believer in Jesus. If you heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus, like you heard that you were separated from a holy God because of something called sin, your rebellion towards God. You naturally do things that rebel against the Lord's commandments, like the Ten Commandments. I shall not steal. I was stealing bubble gum at three, all right? I mean, just people naturally lie. It's in us. It's in our nature. Somebody told you, that you realized that there was a gap between you and God. And then you understood that this person probably unpacked for you that the only way to fix this relationship was that Jesus came to, to restore a relationship. He had to pay your penalty and die on a cross, bleed for you, suffer for you, poured out God's wrath on Jesus that is deserved for you. And then you asked, what, what do I do? Because of Jesus' death on the cross, you could be forgiven of your sin. All the judgment that was reserved for you is now gone and over because Jesus paid it all and now your relationship with God is restored. When you believe that message, you become a true, genuine follower of Jesus. Like that, that is amazing. Because of that, this is your reality. He's talking to you. You have been given the privilege now to behold all of the glory of Jesus. Like that is huge. What does he mean by that? How do you explain that? Um, well, notice the phrase he says next. He says, we all with unveiled face. What Paul is doing here is he's giving us an illustration of Moses. He's bringing back to our mind. There's a guy in the Old Testament, I don't know if you're familiar with the Bible at all, uh, a guy in the Old Testament that God used to um, deliver the people of Israel, God's people from slavery, all right? So this is a picture of our lives. Before we knew Christ, we were in slavery to our sin bondage. Jesus Christ separates, he, he, he restores this uh, relationship with God. We, we cross the Red Sea. Now we're on the other side of the Red Sea. They're no longer slaves. We are children of God, all right? 
Now, this is what he says. The Bible talks about Moses being across the Red Sea with the people of Israel, and God begins to show them who he is. He shows them his glory. He shows them his glory. Um, and this is what I want you to see. So I'm going I'm to read to you. This is a picture of where they were when God first descended from heaven and came to the earth. Um, it's called Mount Sinai. This is where the Ten Commandments came from, all right? So if you're tracking with me, um, this is the scene where Moses, before he went to the top of the mountain and encountered God, I want to show you. In fact, I want you to use your imagination and put yourself there. Like you see that little red dot right here on the bottom? Like that's a little hiker, okay? Well, he's probably like six foot five. I don't know. Um, but he, he's, he's, that's, that, imagine you're there. Put yourself in the scene with the Israelites. This is what you wake up in the morning to on this strange particular morning when God decides to show up to the planet Earth in, in a big way. Check it out. On the morning of the third day, <clears throat> sorry, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast that hummed so loud it was deafening so that all the people in the camp trembled with great fear. Then Moses brought the people out of their camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of that mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke went up like a smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain was trembling greatly. An earthquake, think of like a volcano. That's what they're seeing right now. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in a thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of that mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Like, yo, that is terrifying. Like, I don't know about you, that, but that's scary to me. Like, here is this incredible God. Like, the whole earth is shaking, right? The, the, the ground is shaking. The mountain's shaking. There's smoke, and there's flashing fire and lightning and thunder, and they're trembling. And then God says, Moses, come to the top of this mountain. And he goes. He goes to the top of the mountain. Now, so most of us would be afraid, and that should be our natural response this is God Almighty coming down. It's a terrifying thing. But what Moses knew about God was God loved Moses. God loved those people. They were his people. And perfect love casts out fear. So Moses goes to the top of the mountain, and he receives the Ten Commandments. But do you remember what he, what it was, how he was described when he came down the Ten Commandments? What was so different about Moses after spending 40 days in the presence of God? What was different about Moses? Anybody know? His face was glowing. It was shining with a bright light. He was changed because he encountered God on that mountain. Physically different, noticeably different. That's what Moses was when he beheld his glory. But this was exclusively only for Moses. So when Moses encountered the glory of God, he would come down the mountain, and the people were terrified by the glowing face. And so he had to wear a veil over his face as he would talk to the people. Because the people were terrified. And then when he'd go back in the presence of the Lord, whether it was in the mountain or it was in the tent of meetings, he would remove the veil, talk face to face with God as a friend talks to a friend, encountering the glory of the Lord, then come out of the tabernacle, speak to the people, put the veil back on, and then speak to the go the rest of his day. What am I saying? 
This, Paul is communicating, is our privilege now. Every person who is a child of God now has direct access into the top of the mountain. You too can behold the glory of God in a way that cannot be explained. It cannot be fabricated, can't be articulated. It's something that you have been given the privilege of. You don't have to wait to heaven to experience the glory of God, is what Paul is saying here. This is your reality. But I still am a little confused, right? Because, I mean, I can't see God physically. right? Who the, nobody can see physically God. Well, what was that like? Well, here's what I want. So he says this. What he saw was the glory of the Lord. So, and with, open, with an unveiled face, he beheld the glory of the Lord. Let's talk about this word glory here for just a minute. Again, I repeat, it was the word glory is where we get the uh, Greek word doxa from. It's the, the glory is doxa. Now, what it means literally it's the best definition of glory is, um, it's God's splendor. It's, it's his excellence. It's the magnificence of God. It's the beauty of God. Maybe the best way to say it, it's the fullness of who God is. And it's bound up in Jesus Christ. All of the fullness of the Godhead of the Trinity, the glory of God is in the person of Jesus. And that's what we get to experience with God. We can encounter, we get to behold all of this excellency, the awesomeness of God. That's what Moses experienced at the top of that mountain. And that's what you and I have the privilege to experience. But again, what does it mean to behold, right? So we're, okay, how do I know if I'm beholding that glory? Like, that's what Paul is saying. We get the opportunity to experience it. What does it mean to behold the glory of the Lord like he's describing here? The splendor and the excellence of God. How do I know if I'm beholding that? Jot this down. There's three things that I think will really help you and help me to explain what it means to behold, to truly behold the glory of Jesus. The first thing is this. If you're truly beholding the glory of Jesus, you will see his glory as supreme. You will see his glory as supreme. In other words, he is the supreme version of all that is excellent. Everything that is beautiful that you know of Jesus is the supreme version of that thing. All of the joy that you have when you're around your family or your friends around the table and you're laughing is a small glimpse of the joy that is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And you see that. That's what it means to behold the glory of Jesus. I see that Jesus is better than any other lesser glory in this world. Whether it's spending time around the table with friends or um, the exper experiencing the warmth, the warming comfort of the sun on a cold Indianapolis day, right? The sun feels amazing when the sun goes out and it's cold outside. Is a small glimpse of the comfort of God's love for you when you're encountering his presence. Those are all meant to reflect the person of Jesus, what you and I have the access and the privilege to behold in Jesus. So it's a, those are sweet things. Those are great things. The joy of friendship, the laughter of, of being around family at the holidays. And those are all things. But they're lesser. They're meant to reflect something better, which is the person of Jesus. Do you see that Jesus is better than? If you see that, then you are beholding Jesus. The second thing that will, oh, actually, let me make you this statement. The best way to communicate this is the greatest expression of God's glory or the, of the glory of God is the person of Jesus. I just thought that was a 
simple way of communicating that, the greatest expression of God's glory or the glory of God is in the person of Christ. So the second thing I want you to know, we're talking about truly beholding the glory of God. Um, The first thing is I see his glory as supreme. The second thing that I think will help us behold his glory is that I will savor his glory. All right? I will savor his glory. I encourage you to write this verse down. Psalm 34, verse 8. Psalm 34, verse 8. Maybe even write it in the margin of your Bible here. Here's what it says. Oh, taste and see the glory of the Lord, or the goodness of the Lord, more particularly. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So it's not just a seeing thing. We're not just beholding the Lord doesn't mean just I see him and I know that he's better than all these lesser glories, but he's, he actually is, is, is delightful. There's a joy. There's a delight in knowing these things. There's an experience of knowing these things. So when you see that Jesus' joy is better than the joy around the table with my friends and family, you experience that. Like you're in your living room and you experience the joy of the Lord. Like there's something, a delighting in of the Lord. You experience the peace of the Lord. You experience the comfort of the Lord. These are things that will reveal whether or not you're truly beholding the glory of the Lord. John Piper has given his life to communicating these two statements that I just made. To see God's glory and to savor God's glory is the whole pursuit of mankind. And he made this statement to help him to help define the, his life's goal, his whole purpose of existence is what he said. Um, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So you want to know how to glorify God? Delight in him. See him as better than. Stop pursuing lesser glories and delight in his glory. That's what, it, that's what he's saying here. And when you do that, something begins to happen in you, which is the third thing I want to note here about truly beholding the glory of the Lord. If I'm truly beholding his glory, I will see his glory as supreme. I will savor his glory. And the last thing is, I will be satisfied by his glory. I'll be satisfied by his glory. Now think about that. I mean, that's a big, that's, think about it. As you see his glory, you, you taste and see that he's good. Um, you're not satisfied by the lesser glories. Just hanging around the living room, my friends, is not enough. I need more that's supposed to draw me to Jesus. And when I'm there, I'm satisfied by that. I don't need you to affirm me anymore. I've got all the affirmation from the Lord now. By the way, this is how you overcome sin, if you hear me, if you're tracking with me. If there's this habit in your life you're struggling with, it's probably because you're not beholding the Lord the way you should be. Do you see that he's better than that thing you're chasing? Have you tasted that he really does provide the thing that you're really chasing? And better yet, have you been satisfied by that? You don't need that thing anymore. You've got the best thing, Jesus. More importantly, he's not a thing, he's a person. Um, But the point is, you actually taste it. No, a better way, this is to help me illustrate this. I don't know if you agree with me on, the, on this or not, but it really doesn't matter in my opinion. So hear me out. Um, I love Oreo cookies, all right? Oreo cookies, Nabisco Oreo cookies. There's no other cookie on the planet that is better than an Oreo cookie. Now, some of you all would debate that, but I would disagree with you all the way. Um, so in fact, um, let's, now when you go grocery shopping, um, they all, on, your, on the aisle where you have the cookies, there's always these lesser, cheaper uh, cookies that are wannabe Oreos. You know what I'm talking about? The wannabes um, on the bottom. So you don't pay attention. But sometimes my wife would bring those home and it's like, get rid of those cookies. Anyway, when she, 
the, nothing can replace the, the actual Oreo. And I'm talking about the double-stuffed Oreo cookie. You know what I'm talking about? You're with me? All right, so here's the thing. Whenever my wife buys the double-stuffed Oreo cookies and she takes it out of the grocery bag and I make eye contact with those Oreo cookies, like what happens, I see and I know those aren't the cheaper, lesser value Oreo cookies. Those are the real boom shakalaka double-stuffed Oreo cookies and I want them. I see it and I know it. And so what I begin to do is I open the bag and I begin to taste the Oreo cookie. Now here's what happens. When you taste a bona fide uh, 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 double-stuffed Oreo cookie, um, you, get the, you get the nice vanilla flavoring in the middle and the chocolate crunch, amazing. Um, I will be completely satisfied by my double-stuffed Oreo cookie. And we laugh at that. That's such a funny thing, right? Uh, it, it's true. In my opinion, it's absolutely 100% true. If it's this way for an Oreo cookie that is a lesser value, how much more is seeing and savoring and being satisfied in God's glory better than anything else that we could possibly imagine? We understand it with an Oreo cookie, but do you understand it's the same way with Jesus? He's better than. Now, this is where we have to be careful because in Christianity, this is where we tend to stop. Most of the time we read that verse, you're like, yes, I just want to behold Jesus. Like there's nothing better than beholding Jesus. And a lot of times Christians, Christianity, especially in America, we tend to struggle with this. I just want to get my Bible and just sit in my lap, my living room, and the fireplace is going. I got my hot cup of coffee here, and I'm just, I'm just loving Jesus. Jesus is great. I love Jesus. He's so amazing. I love it. And I'm drinking my hot cup of coffee, feet are kicked up, and all I'm doing is just sitting and enjoying him. I'm just savoring him. If this is all you are doing in your Christian faith and your walk with Jesus, and you think that you're truly beholding Jesus, but all you're doing is sitting, hear me, there's a good chance you are not actually beholding Jesus at all. Perhaps you're just beholding yourself. Now, I say that because it's the very next thing in the text. True beholding of Jesus leads to something, and it goes somewhere. Notice what he says in verse 18, continuing. He says, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Write this down, church. This is the second thing I want to note. I want you to note here in regards to, um, uh, as true believers, we get the privilege of, of seeing the glory of God, but also um, there's this idea of um, becoming like the person of Jesus that cannot be ignored. Beholding Jesus produces a becoming like Jesus. In fact, he makes three clarifying remarks about that very thing. He talks about, number one, there's, a, there's something that happens, and it's called transformation. It's where we get the word metamorphosis from. So he uses the word, he says, we're going to be transformed, or being transformed. It's metamorpho in the Greek, and it means to completely change the form. Like you're a totally different person. When you behold Jesus and you see him and you savor him and you're satisfied by him, like you're not going to be the same. Something changes in you. It's a complete transfiguration. Perhaps you might remember when Jesus went to the top of the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he invited them to the top of the mountain. Funny thing, top of the mountain again. Here we go. And the Bible says that Jesus was transfigured before them. The glory that was in him was shining out of him, and they saw it. 
The same thing happens to the believer when you truly see and savor and are satisfied by him. The glory that is inside of you, that's the Holy Spirit, will begin to come out of you and you will be changed in a noticeable way. Your behavior will change. His desires become your desires. His, um, his passions become your passions. Jesus' motives become your motives. Now with that said, is that true for you? What kind of a life did Jesus live, church? What was the purpose why he came to this earth? He came to serve. He came to rescue humanity. He came to point people to the glory of God. You could say it shortly like this. He came to live a sent life. Church, if all you are doing is thinking you're beholding the glory of the Lord, but if you, as you look at your life and you're not seeing a, a passion for Jesus like his passion, a desire for Jesus like his desires, you're not craving the same thing that he craves, then perhaps you're not beholding him at all because he desired the salvation of others. He didn't just desire to come in, into a building with a bunch of Christians and just worship the Father. That was part of it. But he came to live a sent life, to give his life as a ransom for many. Are you giving your life in any way to anybody for God's glory? It's a convicting thought, but it makes you wonder. So um, let's continue. Not only is it that he talked about this transformation, what does, what does it mean? Um, but he also says this, how does the transformation actually happen? Notice the phrase. He says, our being transformed into the same degree, from one degree of glory to another. It's a progressive thing. That word being transformed is a present tense verb. It's something that happens over time. The more you behold God's glory, the more you're going to become like Jesus. You're going to be a better wife. You're going to be a better husband. You're going to be a better child, a better student, a better individual Christ follower. Because you are beholding Jesus. It's not going to come by your discipline and your duty to make sure you follow the list of good things you know you should be doing and praying and fasting and reading my Bible and making sure I witness to my neighbor because I have to do that. No, stop. It comes from your beholding. As you behold him, you see him, are satisfied in him, and you're savoring that. You just want to do it because he's coming out of you. That's what he's saying here, um, and that is your reality. It happens one degree to another over time. So if you're frustrated with yourself because you don't feel like you're loving the person you should be loving the way you should be loving them, or maybe you're struggling over a particular habit that you keep struggling with, give yourself grace, church. Give yourself grace because you're under construction. Just keep beholding Jesus and he will change you. That would be my encouragement to those of you who are struggling with that. But kill sin. Don't, don't tolerate your sin. I mean, kill it. Like, drag it out like it's a lion that it is and put a bullet in its head right in front of everybody in your small group and say, this is my sin, and I'm tired of it. You need to do that, for sure. Don't tolerate your sin. But understand you are under construction, and God is with you. The third thing, and this, I'll, I'll kind of close up with this, um, he points out in this passage, it's kind of very clear. Hey, let me ask you, who does the changing in our lives? Like, what, what, is the actual, what does the Bible actually say? Like, is this something that we do? Who does the transforming work in our lives? Anybody know? What's the text say? The Holy Spirit. It's God doing the work. Like, that's so freeing. Like, I don't, I'm not going to be able to change myself. Jesus gives me the desires to change, and he does that. Check it out. 
And the verse says this, for the, this comes from the Lord, not Joe Catronio, um, who is the Spirit. Thank you, God. I mean, if I look back at my life, I was literally, I mean, I, I, mean, I, was, a, I was a mess when I first came to Christ, right? I was, I was doing things I shouldn't have been doing. I was far from the Lord, and, um, but God gave me a new desire. I stopped hanging out with the guys I used to hang out with and roll blunts with, and I stopped doing stupid stuff in my neighborhood because I wanted to hang out with Christians that were seemingly growing in their faith, and they started to disciple me, and I started to notice I had greater passions, greater desires. I still had a glory desire. I, had, was, I was created to be a glory pursuer, but my glory was rightly aligned. I know that he was the one that I was made for. Like smoking weed didn't satisfy anymore. Like I just wanted him. That's what happens to you. When you behold the glory of the Lord, you change. For me, it was that. What is it for you? What are you settling for? I would just challenge you, don't settle. God is better. He's doing a great work in you. I love this reference. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul, who's the same author of this book, made this statement explaining the same thing, but in a little different way. It's says Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. He, made, he says it this way. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He does two things. He gives you the will, the desire, the passion for Jesus. Not you. You don't fabricate that. Jesus gives that to you. And then it's the will to work. Like you want to do what Jesus puts you in this world to do. And what is that to do? It's to bring him glory, to bring him doxa. Like everybody in the building is called to live a doxa life, whether you go with us to plant a church called doxa or not. Like this is what we're called to. And we only get there when we behold him. And I would just challenge you, continue, continue to behold the glory of the Lord. All right, so in closing, I love how he, this is on the same statement, that really there is no chapter break here, and he wrote this letter. This chapter break didn't occur, but I want to draw your attention to verse number six in chapter four, because he really clarifies the why. Why is God changing us to begin with? Like, what's the point of it all? Check this out. Verse number six, and we'll be done. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts. Like, we experience salvation, the glory of God is in us. But why, Paul? And here's the reason why. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Like, God saved me so that other people can see that Jesus saves. Like, that's the point. It's more than just coming to church and singing worship songs. It's more than just sitting in front of your fireplace with your Bible and becoming a Bible fathead. It's so much more than that, all right? It's about living for his glory. See him, be savoring him, and be satisfied him so that you can live for him, to give your life for him. Look how he says in verse 7. He says it again. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We have a mission, a mission of great joy that's to be for all people. Every person, let's get in on that mission and share that good news with the world. But it only comes from our beholding. Let us behold him. I could think of no greater way to end the service than to ask the ushers to go to the back and make ready for communion. Because one of the greatest ways we can behold the glory of the Lord together is around the communion table. Uh, imaginary, because we don't actually have a big table large enough for all to fit around. But 
communion is a great way of expressing everything that we just talked about in a physical, tangible way. Like, check it out, right? Just hear me out. We're getting ready to be passed out um, little pieces of square bread. Um, it's, it's bread that's meant to symbolize Jesus' body that was broken for many. Like Jesus' body, he's broken on a cross so that we could all be invited in so we can experience the top of the mountain of God's glory. Like he broke his body for us. And then we're all going to have this little cup, this little juice cup, right? But it's so much more than just a juice cup. It's made to be a small glimpse of the greater glory of Jesus' blood that was poured out on the cross. It's a tangible way for us to behold the glory of God together. You can, are you seeing the traction there? It's all there. We're not making it up. So I'm going to ask the ushers to come to the front. And as we do this, I have one request. That's it. All I want us to do is behold him. Like literally. Let's, let's together see that he is so much better, that his glory is more lasting, his joy is more sweet. And then let's, let's savor that together. Let's savor it and, and delight in what Jesus has done. And then let's be satisfied. Like no more lesser glories. Like I just want him. Let's do that together as a family of God. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for, for the incredible gift of salvation that you have given to us. None of us are worthy of it. And for the person here who perhaps has never known these things to be true, I pray that today you will open their eyes, put in them an awakening heart that they would see that they are, that you are what they were searching for. And they've been settling for lesser glories for far too long. God, encourage that person to come to us and tell somebody in the building that they want to know Jesus in that way. And I pray that today will be the beginning of an incredible adventure. For the rest of us, Lord, let's just help, help us, Lord, through the power of your spirit to simply 